This week on Behind the Lens, a class action lawsuit alleges the mismanagement at John F. Kennedy High School had been ongoing for years prior to the previously acknowledged issues, which led to the class of 2019 being unable to graduate on time. Budgeting session is upon us and some of the city's top industries have been severely impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. As a result, tax collections are down and expected to stay that way well into 2021 and the city is facing an unprecedented budget shortfall. Also in budget news, in Mayor Cantrell's proposed 2021 budget, the Public Defender's Office would only receive around 28% of funding of the DA's office, in direct contravention of an ordinance passed in August mandating that it receive 85%. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Callan. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein is here. Hi, Michael. Good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado doing double duty, covering crim- criminal justice this week for Nick and overseeing everything. Hi, Charles. Good morning. All right, Marta, we're starting with you and the John F. Kennedy High School story. New filings in a lawsuit filed by Kennedy High School students against their former charter operator, Louisiana Department of Education and the Orleans Parish School Board reveal mismanagement of student records may have extended years prior to what was previously known. Nearly half of Kennedy's 2019 graduating class learned weeks after graduation they didn't meet state requirements for a diploma and a former Kennedy guidance counselor is testifying that she discovered credit and course tracking issues as early as the 2015-2016 school year and immediately told her supervisors about it then. What does the new information mean for students? Uh, so I think this new information really uh, helps bolster their case that you know this was um, mismanagement on many levels. And if, if this was known that early on, um, you know I think they're really building a stronger case here. Um, as far as students, especially building their stronger case towards damages, there's obviously not a whole lot that can be done in terms of these delayed diplomas, but they did cause you know serious issues like students not being able to access financial aid um, and struggling to get into colleges and um, other issues like that. How does this impact uh, previous graduates? It doesn't appear like it will impact you know their diplomas at the moment, where I do think it's going to impact the previous classes is is any of them who are in on this lawsuit uh, seeking damages they might you know be able to see something more come out of it and yeah yeah just just to to add to that this is a class action as it actually yet been certified as a class action but you know assuming that damages that damages would be rewarded and that it would it would be certified as a class action this could affect the entirety of the classes of 2018 2019 2020 uh in a previous complaint filed i'm not i can't remember exactly how long ago the attorney wanted to include uh you know current students there as well but I believe uh, that they have been taken out of the uh, of the proposed class because the the lead defendant, New Beginning Schools Foundation, no longer runs the school. In other words, the scope of the class action is fairly limited to to just these types of infractions they found. The 2015 16 group, 16 17, et cetera, who may have had um, improprieties or or other 
substandard educational outcomes aren't going to join this class action lawsuit? I mean, I, I, at the moment, they're not in it. Um, it's it's. I suppose it's possible that they could that that those classes could be added to it because of this newfound evidence. I'm not I'm not sure why they weren't added to it. It could simply be that um, the attorney has not found um, a, a named plaintiff from those classes to be a representative of those parts of the class. Okay. That. So, but you know, there, there's always the option of uh, further amending this complaint. Right. It's pretty explosive now. Does it surprise you that this information has has not leaked prior to this, or that that, that they didn't leak it somehow? This is big, a big deal. Uh, working in the education system in this city is, uh, I know it's very tough for anyone to come forward with information they think might be compromising if it gets tied back to their name because uh, it's an at will city. Mm. It's uh, there are a lot of people who say if you do something like uh, Mr. King did, he did come forward, you kind of get blackballed from the education community. Um, and he indeed is working in Baton Rouge now. He's not working in the city. Oh, right. So I think it, a lot of people are fearful of coming forward if they do have any type of knowledge like that. Um, and then I think a lot of what we saw here is um, there would be no incentive for for the district or the charter group to release this information so right of course we're gonna learn about it yeah so what happens next marta so there's a, a couple things we're waiting on i know that the lawyer is really hoping to get her hands on um new beginnings new beginnings hired an attorney to investigate um the grade changing allegations and that so far has not become public. And I know that the attorney, um, she's really hoping to get her hands on that. I believe what the lawyer said is, the, or I believe what the judge in the case said is that the judge is going to review the report and decide whether or not it should become public. Um, then the other recent big news is that um, an appeals court ruled that the Orleans Parish School Board can indeed be included in this lawsuit. So now that they're back and included, I think the judge needs to reevaluate um, likely her decision about uh, she had ruled that Superintendent Henderson Lewis can't be deposed. And so I, that was on the same day that that OPSB was put back into the lawsuit. So I think the attorney for the students will be challenging that again. And OPSB, NOLA Public Schools being back in, you know, opens this up to exactly what did the district know and when did the district know it and what did they do about it? Right. That's Huge. also what I had in my notes. Who knew what when? We're, we're getting closer. <laughs> well, thanks for staying on it for us. That's a great story. Thanks, Carolyn. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. When you listen to this podcast or read a story at our website, you join in on the process of examining life and culture in a way that makes us all better citizens and better people. With more and more noise and information coming at us every day, it's important to have a place you can rely on for truth and balance. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org donate. And thank you. Michael, you're up next with the, uh, the new budget. The New Orleans City Council began department by department hearings this week to help craft a city budget for 2021. Cantrell is trying to cut $100 million to cope with the economic fallout caused by the coronavirus. 
Trying to predict what's going to happen next year and how quickly the economy can ramp up again is nearly impossible with the field changing so drastically every day. What is the process the council's going through right now and what makes this so unusual this year? Yeah, so, so every year um, the city council holds budget hearings, you know, just like in Congress or other, you know, levels of government, um, the city has to pass and approve a budget every year. Um, so basically how this process will go is that the, the mayor's office will really put together a draft budget and then the city council will hold these hearings where they, they basically talk to every or most departments and agencies that are having their budgets determined um, and basically asking them, is this all you need? Why do you need X increase? I see you're cutting X position. So basically it's the chance for the city council to make sure they fully understand what's in the budget and how it's going to affect how things function. So I, I've been covering these for a few years. Charles uh, covered them um, for a long time before that. Usually you're, you're kind of working around the margins, right? Every year what you expect is that you're going to have a little bit more money than last year, right? Just inflation naturally, you know, um, the budget increases every year. So you're looking for where are we investing those new dollars? It's always more marginal pieces. This year we're dealing with massive, massive changes in, in every department and agency in the city. Um, to the, if one of these departments was facing one of these changes in, in you know, any other year, we'd be super focused on that. You know? So it can be a little tough to kind of translate this year's budget into you know, what are the mayor's priorities for this year, right? Because there's so many changes um, that, that it can be a little bit hard to track. Um, the, the, the other thing um, that makes it a weird year is that we don't really know how much money the city is going to be able to take in next year, right? Property taxes, which is one of our primary, primary sources of funding, I mean, that, that we can expect to remain pretty consistent, but things like sales taxes, uh, hotel taxes, um, things like revenue from the... Um, the speeding cameras outside schools, right? If, if schools um, aren't in person next year for any reason, those won't be on and, and that's going to be less revenue. So it's really, um, you know, as the, the administration, you know, often says they're, they're behind the eight ball on this. So, you know, we're looking at a lot of big changes and a lot of uncertainty. Um, and it's, it's a very unique year. I've heard some people make comparisons to dealing with the budget uh, post Katrina. The big question mark um, in terms of dollars is, is, uh, is sales taxes and hotel taxes. Sales taxes in particular, the general sales tax, is the biggest individual source of taxes for the city, bigger than property taxes. And, and basically what had happened year over year, you know, at least in the last seven or eight years, is that, this, that the mayor would budget approximately the, you know, the same sales tax projections as the city um, had received the prior year. And then what would happen is that typically uh, the city would outperform projections. This year, they're having to estimate in the opposite direction. And that's leading to what is resulting in, in an almost across the board 20% cut in the general, in general fund for departments. You mentioned property taxes being a huge source of revenue. How stable are they in this environment and can they be changed? Last year, like Charles said, we had this big reassessment um, and there was a lot of talk, you know, there were property values all around the city, you know, houses that doubled or, or tripled um, in, in, in value. And it was a year where a lot of people saw their property tax burden go way, way up. Um, now this year, you know, 
what recently came out is that the assessor, Errol Williams, worked with the city and the hospitality industry and, 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 and other groups um, to drastically cut a lot of commercial property values in the city. I, I, I can't pull the numbers out from the top of my head, but some of these larger hotels are seeing their their property tax burden cut in half, mm. um, and you know it, it's it's been a controversial thing because some of these are going to to you know things like the Sheraton or you know larger multinational corporations exactly you know who are expected to ride out this storm and come out the other side and continue their business. So what we're seeing this year is we are seeing a big de- decrease or a significant decrease um, in, in commercial property values. I think that the reason why we're projected to come out um, about the same a little bit more than what we had this year um, is that some new property taxes are coming online this year. So, so the overall rate um, that is, um, so more property taxes were added. That was uh, we we approved a um, a parks millage that that provides money to City Park, the Audubon Commission, and Department of Parks and Parkways. So. I believe since the rate is slightly going up and these commercial property values are going down, the end result is that we're expecting to be just a little bit above where we were this year. Okay. There, there were some major write downs with, uh, with, you know, downtown hospitality businesses in particular, but you know, big picture that does not have as big of an impact as the 160,000 residences across the city that mostly saw their taxes go Go up over the past two years. Okay. All right, so she's got $100 million she has to cut. Is it just, where is it going? Where is she cutting? Everywhere. Um, You know, I, I don't, I have not seen a department yet that isn't dealing with pretty drastic cuts. Um, some are dealing with bigger cuts than others. I'd say the general trend is that if we're talking about like proportion of the budget, you know, how much of your budget is being cut. Some of those smaller departments that are seeing cuts of 40, maybe even 50%, the, the biggest cuts numerically are coming from the biggest departments. So, you know, the NOPD has a pretty significant cut but it only equates to like around 10% of their overall budget. And also facing a budget cut, the public library system is at risk of losing millions when voters go to the polls next month. What's at stake here? Yeah, so, so the library, like um, you know, other departments in the city, is facing big cuts. Their budget, their revenue, what they take, take in every year, um, it's not determined by the city council. It's not determined by um, you know how much is allocated in that budget. They have dedicated funding sources, um, mainly in the form of two property taxes, um, where the money goes directly to the library. Um, and that's about, you know, as it stands today, you know, they, they collect about $20 million a year. The threat to their budget isn't coming through these budget hearings. For them, um, they're looking to the December 5th election. So on December 5th, voters will, will be going um, to the polls, or they'll be going early. Early voting starts November 20th, I believe. And they'll be voting on three ballot propositions related to to, um, property taxes in the city. And and basically, this is a proposal that came from Mayor Latoya Cantrell, basically reshuffling a package of existing property taxes and reallocating where those dollars go. So it's not raising taxes, it wouldn't cut taxes, but it would change where that money is dedicated. And, And basically, you know, the end result of these changes is that around seven, eight million dollars of the library budget 
is going to be reallocated to um, several different things. So, so housing, economic development, um, infrastructure and maintenance, and then um, early childhood education as well. So if that passes, um, the library is looking at about a 40% cut to the, the tax revenues it, it has taken in in the past. Okay. However, this is, it's becoming a little bit of a, an issue with library leadership. Will you talk about who is speaking out against this? Yeah, so there was a, um, a library board meeting on, on uh, Wednesday night. So, so the library, again, it, it functions independently. It's um, governed by this board. All of them are appointed by the mayor, so there is that influence, uh, undoubtedly. However, it is supposed to function as an independent body. So they, they had a meeting last night, and um, one of the board members, Andrea Neighbors, you know, brought up a question that I, I've been wondering myself um, for a while now. She was asking why the library, you know, seemed to be supportive of this ballot measure and why there hadn't been a more critical discussion among the board or among library leadership about, you know, what the library's position should even be, right? She was basically saying, we've taken it for granted that we're supporting this. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily the right position for us to take. The, the, the marketing from um, Latoya Cantrell's political action committee um, has largely, you know, when, when you're looking at the specific ballot measure about um, the library, you know, in the language, it, it really does sound like you are voting for funding the library and early childhood education. There isn't a lot of indication in the ballot measure itself that this is going to result in a cut. And in the marketing, you know, uh, materials that have been put out, again, by, by Cantrell's PAC, um, it, it's just focused on, you know, creating this dedicated funding for early childhood education. So she was basically asking whether the library should be trying to tell people what this cut means. And the Cantrell administration has kind of repeatedly said that these cuts won't come with any, you know, major, um, you know, detrimental changes to the library, that hours won't be cut, that services won't be cut. Um, and, and neighbors last night kind of pushed back on that and questioned that, you know, a 40% cut to a budget, it's hard to sustain services, whatever you're talking about, if you take 40% of the money away. So right. I think she was just calling out the logic there of, of how that would happen. Um, now, the interesting thing is that the library this week also presented their 2021 budget um, to the city council. They presented a budget that was premised on having the same level of funding they had this year. Um, and basically what um, Gabriel Morley, the executive director of the library, said was, this is our budget, and if the proposition passes and we have to cut our budget, then that's what we'll do. Um, so it still leaves a ton of ambiguity about what exactly would be cut um, you know, if the ballot measure were to pass. Um, he mentioned that there's an annual like attrition rate of 10 to 13%. So every year they just lose, you know, right. some of their employees. And he said that, you know, over the next three years, if they just don't rehire those positions, um, that would save them enough money to match up with their new funding. And in the meantime, they have a little bit, they have some reserves that they can use to kind of fill in those gaps as they're, you know, getting rid of staffs. So th that's as, about as much as we know about, you know, what this would look like um, if, if this thing passes. They're answering this in the way that, that departments facing cuts typically do, which is we're going to cut staff by attrition. We're not laying people off. But if you, you know, if you eliminate positions through attrition, uh, retirements and, and people who are, you know, resigning, you still have fewer positions. Fewer positions means 
you won't have as many people to provide the services. This is this is a department that that most of their budget is 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 people rather than an operational budget. But and and that has actually also been one of the arguments the city has used is that they could you know they could have fewer they could have fewer people and uh, and you know they, they, their operational budget is so small that it wouldn't make any difference. Although, but you know, again, it's one of these departments where the people are the, the operations. They're the people putting together the programming. They're the people who, who you know, are curating. You know, all the things that people that that, that librarians and li- library staff do. The service, the service is made possible by the people who work there. So it seems to me unrealistic that you're going to have a forty percent cut, um, which will result in fewer employees almost inevitably. Um, and you're going to be able to provide the same level of service. Now, it could be partly true, as Michael sort of alluded to a minute ago, uh, for for a few years, because they had they did, were able to build up a significant reserve fund, which is another thing that this that city officials have kind of used against them. Um, now, they only were able to build up that reserve fund because a few years back the voters passed a, a, a new tax for the library, and that brought in some, some additional money. Now, as a result of that, they were able to ramp up the services that they were providing, but it took a few years to fully ramp up the services to where we are now, and in the meantime, you know, they were, they were saving a little money. So at, at this point, their annual budget is very close to what they're taking in, in taxes per year. They're no longer continuing to build up a reserve fund, so if that's what they're going to rely on next year, that is going to run out. Yeah. Also, in, in light of COVID, like the staffers are actually doing more work now. And I know that might not be, I know you don't want to hinge all your bets on COVID, but staffers are literally, they're curating more. They're literally getting more books off the shelf to hand to people because there's less people in the buildings and they're doing a lot of the cleaning too. So there's more personnel time going into it right now, I think. I think that there's an important backdrop here that that can maybe go to explaining what the Cantrell administration, what their plan is for this reduced budget. I I think that there's an overall theme here where the the mayor is trying to bring the library more under the umbrella of, of her authority. During the pandemic, she launched a pilot program to basically start putting other city resources in unused space within libraries. So there's a vision here where there'll be people from safety and permits in the libraries. So if you want to, you know, build a new fence in your yard, but you live in New Orleans East and you don't want to drive all the way to City Hall, you can go to your local library and get it done there. So I think that there's a vision here from the Cantrell administration where the library, um, rather than being, you know, very, very independent, is very, very integrated with city services. And, and, And part of that, something that they said is, you know, once that happens, we're open to using general funds. You know, if the property taxes they get do turn out to be inadequate, you know, we can always come in and help them out and determine how much money they, they need. But, but again, the city would be more in control of that. A- another larger theme here um, is, is this idea of dedicated taxes. Um, so one way that people are critical of the, of the local tax system here is that we have a ton of dedicated taxes. So taxes that are levied for a very specific purpose, right? You know, pockets of money that can only be used for infrastructure or pockets of money that can only be used for the library, for example. Now, the criticism there is that you're gonna, if you dedicate a certain amount of taxes, then that's just the revenue that they're gonna bring in. 
but you don't necessarily know how much the library needs in any given year. Cydia has said what they would rather do is you know, first start with what does the library need and what do we want to do and what do we want to expand and then decide how much money um, they need after that. I think that, you know, there's an objection here to the idea that they'll get a certain amount of money and, you know, they'll just have to figure out ways to spend it. So, again, that, that's something that's been applied to things like the convention center, the Superdome. Hmm. That, that same kind of thought process is now being applied to, to the library. I mean, that's an interesting point. That's a point that I think uh, organizations like BGR have been pushing for several years. The interesting thing that I always see is that there are plenty of de dedicated taxes that all these administrations have pushed for. And now that we're in a somewhat different situation, now they're arguing against them, claiming it's a political philosophy. Interesting point. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Charles Fernick in Criminal Justice Still on the budget, we've got another issue that's come up. In August, the City Council passed an ordinance mandating parity in city funding between the Public Defender's Office and the DA's Office. When the mayor announced the proposed budget, it ignored that ordinance, and yesterday the Public Defenders went before City Council saying, hey, what happened? You told us we were gonna get 85% of the funding of the DA's Office. How did this happen that they're now contravening their own mandate? Well, yeah. Well, let, let's start. Let's start by by talking about you know this mandate. It is an ordinance that purports to mandate eighty five percent funding. In this background, eighty five percent is the number they reached because the public defenders estimate that they handle about eighty five percent of criminal cases in the city. Obviously, the uh, the DAs handles one hundred percent of them. So the problem with calling this uh, calling this eighty five percent parity ordinance ordinance a true mandate is that it's just an ordinance. The city budget is also passed by ordinance. So when you pass the budget, you can overwrite those other or that, uh, that other ordinance. Now, to sort of contrast that, there is, I believe, only one city department that is, is mandated to have a certain level of funding, and that's the Office of Inspector General slash Ethics Review Board slash the Independent Police Monitor. That mandate is contained in the city charter. And that can't be overridden by a budget ordinance. So they referred to this as a mandate. It's never actually been a mandate. Gosh, it sounds like it's you, you get some promise something for Christmas and you end up with a lump of coal. Um, what happened at the meeting? So yesterday at the meeting, and you know, to be to be one hundred percent honest here, I mean, I mean, I have to keep my remarks on a little on the short side because I, I wasn't actually covering it myself. I'm filling in for Nick here. Yep. But I, I did edit the story. So we had the the, uh, the the public defenders there, really, really pushing hard to get this uh, get this funding level up to this eighty five percent, which would be a few million dollars more than what the Cantrell administration is currently offering them. And in response, you saw several council members who were very much open to that idea and supportive of the 85% uh, parity, parity ordinance. The problem, of course, that they're gonna encounter is where are we gonna come up with this several million dollars? Right. You know, we, take, we put several million dollars into uh, OPD funding, we gotta take it from somewhere else. Right. Um, and one of the interesting things, and, and let me just preface this by saying, this is almost definitely not going to happen. Um, but one of the council members brought up the idea of, you know, we could also get to parity by keeping the OPD budget where it's at and lowering the DA's budget. Now, I don't, I don't see that happening. 
So the spirit of the August ordinance is continuing on into today's budget meetings. Yeah, you know, they passed this ordinance. It was passed, you know, with great fanfare and self-congratulation. Um, and I think, I, I think they'd like to be able to say now that they at least fought for parity, even if they can't deliver it. And, you know, so that's going to play out in the next couple weeks. They have to pass a budget by um, December 1st. I think they're hoping to do it sooner. I think this public defender budget will be one of those in- one of those very interesting ones to watch. It is always kind of an interesting one to watch because the public defender's office for many years has been in you know budget crisis after budget crisis. Related to, to their relatively low funding, related to over the past couple of years uh, decreasing revenue from from things like traffic tickets, and they've had several years where they've had to stop accepting cases. They've had several years where they had to do, or they've, they've had furloughs and hiring freezes in the past. And this is basically translated to, they come to the city council every year and they say, we need a you know, million, two million, whatever more dollars. Um, and it's a big dramatic hearing. And the city council ends up you know, throwing something their way that tends to be somewhere in the three to $500,000 range. This year they're saying, you, know, you promised us you promised us several million dollars more. I anticipate that there will be some upward movement in the public defender's budget, but I, you know, I wonder if it's going to be anywhere close to what is being promised in this in this ordinance they passed in August. Somewhere between twenty-eight percent and eighty-five percent. Right. Right. What does it look like if they do get closer to parity? Just more more staff, I assume. But what else? You know, they're saying that they'll be able to hire more attorneys, they'll be able to hire more investigators, and more attorneys and more investigators means more people ending able to spend more time with individual cases. One of the big, you know, one of the big problems that results from having such low funding and having uh, and not being able to hire them at the level that perhaps uh, they believe that they need is that you've got public defenders who are handling dozens or a hundred and more cases, a hundred or more cases at a time. You know, theoretically, if that funding goes up, you're gonna have you're gonna have more public defenders and more public defenders spending more time on each individual case. Right. So getting better representation to those that need it. Right. The other side of this, um, and you know, as I said before, I do not believe that this will go in the direction of of, of the DA's office having its funding significantly cut. But the other side of this is the DA's office. And the DA's office, when this ordinance was passed, their argument sort of at the time was, uh, you know, it's, yes, they handle 85% of cases, but, but that doesn't mean that they need 85% of our funding, because we do all these things that are not strictly related to prosecuting cases. You know, we run a, you know, we run a diversion program. Um, you know, we run, you know, several other programs that are run within within the DA's office. So that that has been the DA's office's argument against it. You know, when it passed, um, and the DA's office as well, by the way, is, is facing a twenty percent cut in in this budget. Okay, so they're getting hit too. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. Thanks, Michael and Marta. Thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news, along with opinions, at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.